I was talking to my brother the other day uh, while he was out in the combine, and he was explaining to me, uh, you know how you get on the phone sometimes and you're talking to someone and you realize they're not really there, they're paying attention to something else. So that was the case, and he was uh, doing combine work, and, and uh, we hung up, and he called back, and he said, sorry, I was paying attention to something else. I was uh, calculating the sum ratio or whatever on the, on the farm, and it reminded me of uh, my farm background. It's been a, a while, but I, I came to Iowa State after high school, having been in uh, FFA, in the Future Farmers of America, and uh, was part of that whole organization, even uh, my first year at Iowa State. And uh, grew up in a little uh, town in Northwest Iowa, Marathon. Anybody heard of Marathon? All right, yeah, great. And uh, we had, at that point, uh, about 500 people, but we didn't live in town. We were three miles outside of Marathon and grew up on a farm, and I came to a big city. Ames, back then, instead of being uh, half as big as now, twice as big as it was in 1981 when I first came, and I remember being a little intimidated by the size of the city that Ames was, and uh, took my classes, got involved in church, and that kind of thing, and noticed in uh, my class there was this Asian guy, and I met him. And he was from Korea, and he lived not too far from where I lived, and enjoyed talking with him, and shared the gospel with him, and invited him to church. Sure enough, he responded in faith, and we did some Bible study, and he was baptized at our church there in Ames. Uh, later on, uh, my wife and I went to, uh, to, to get a real feel for uh, being around a lot of people, a Iowa State football game, and just tens of thousands of people, and all out of control, and, and started to just get a better idea of what the masses of people would be like. We didn't have that on the farm. Uh, and then uh, a friend of mine decided to lead a new conference that was coming out. It was called the Perspectives on the World Christian Movement. And there's this guy, Stephen Hawthorne, who came to Ames, and we had a kickoff for that in Ames uh, in about 1982 or three or so. And uh, then in 1984, our group from Iowa State went overseas six weeks in Kenya. We did some student ministry at a university there and got a little feel for uh, what it was like overseas. We stayed with the missionary and got a sense of what missionary life was like. So if you add uh, um, missions, education, uh, international student experience, a sense to go overseas, hanging out with students with the heart for the evangelism and discipleship and the nations, God began to stir in our lives to continue our process of, of going overseas. And so we did. We finished school and seminary and all that kind of thing. And we ended up in 1990 in South Korea. And my assignment, our assignment, was to work with college students on a campus there and to start a college ministry. And uh, the International Mission Board that we went through had a developed ministry in Korea since even after the Korea War days in the 1950s. And so by 1990, when we got there, uh, there were about 125 IMB missionaries in Korea. We were in Seoul for a while and worked on language school, and then we moved to another city. Only a million people. Uh, and 
uh, worked with college students there for six years. So did the things that you think missionaries do. And you know what that is? Uh, learn the language, learn the culture, eat different kinds of food, hang out a lot with people and pastors, and in my case, college students. Started the ministry, got a building, raised up staff, raised up funding for the staff, and established a student ministry on a few campuses connected with a few churches there in Korea, Taejon, South Korea. And about that time, the world Christian movement was starting to ask the question, are we properly deployed? The IMB was asking that question is, in where we have most of our people, is that really, really the most strategic place? And the criteria was basically, where can we send them? You know, we want to go to places where you can get in as a missionary and do your work. And so we were in places like uh, South uh, America and Sub-Saharan Africa and Europe and so on, and in South Korea and many other places too. But these were the big fields. And as you recall, back in those days, the, the Soviet Union uh, was just, had just collapsed and all those Stan countries were opening up. And what the IMB discovered is that when we went to these harvest fields where people were really responding in faith, it, yeah, it was because God was working there. But when they looked at the other places where the missionaries weren't, it wasn't because the people weren't responsive. It's because there was no gospel witness there. And so when we got into the Stans, and I know you're familiar with Kazakhstan and all the rest, uh, they started seeing people coming to Christ. And the IMB said, we need to redeploy. And so they went to places like South America and Brazil and Sub-Saharan Africa and uh, Europe and asked the people, would God be calling you to a more unreached area? And about that time, our ministry was uh, not finishing, but that phase was completed. Our mission was accomplished where we started that that student ministry. And I moved from 26 years old, maybe six, seven years older than college students. And now I'm 33 or 34. And now I'm 12 years, 13 years older than college students, married, had four kids. And uh, we, we started wondering, yeah, maybe we should go somewhere else. And, and we, uh, language learning is pretty hard and it's harder the older you get. And I thought we, we probably have one more language learning experience in us. And so we better go and we better go now. So we went in 1996 and landed in Istanbul, Turkey. Uh, the IMB was a little um, disorganized there. Uh, Turkey's in a, a, a unique part of the world. It's kind of Europe and it's kind of the Middle East. It's a Muslim background uh, country and it's Central Asia. And so uh, the IMB's approach wasn't that everybody was trying to reach Turkey. It's that no one was trying to reach Turkey, and they didn't have much of a response there. So we ended up there, and we were uh, team leaders of a team of no one. And uh, we uh, were there in 96 and studied language and, and uh, didn't have any language teachers and had to figure all that out. My Korea experience uh, was uh, very helpful in knowing just kind of how to navigate a big city. You know, there are 15 million, maybe 20 million now in Istanbul. And uh, Iowa has 3 million. So uh, uh, it was a, an ex a new experience for us that 
going from the farm to Istanbul, we couldn't have handled, but God had prepared us each step of the way. And so in, in 97, we started recruiting people and, and trying to bridge the gap of, uh, my role has changed here. Uh, there isn't such a thing as just what missionaries do. There's what I need to do. And when I was in Korea, I did the, the evangelism and discipleship and developed ministry. But in Turkey, in order to reach a, a population group of 70 or 80 million people, I, I wanted to have a different approach. And my assignment was different. I wasn't to just start a ministry or a church among my friends and neighbors and the, the guy who cuts your hair and the guy who sells you vegetables on the corner, but I was to mobilize the resources of Southern Baptists and the IMB and even beyond in order to reach the people group of the Turks of Turkey. And so the, the change in my mind was I probably will have less opportunity to do evangelism and discipleship, but it's for the greater good that I can recruit others. So my system was to invite short-term people to come to Istanbul. And so in 97, I invited everybody I knew to come to Istanbul and, and say, come on in. It's, it's fun here. There's, uh, the, the Hagia Sophia, an old church, is so fun to see. It was built in 537. It's one of the largest churches in the world, in the Grand Bazaar. And, and uh, Turks are great people. They like people. They like America. They go to work and watch TV and play soccer. They're, they're just folks. They're just doing what everybody does in the world. They're not every day waking up, not liking Americans or anything like that. And so in 98, we had people come. We had 150 uh, come on short-term trips. And uh, I don't know if you've been on one. On the other end, it's a lot of work. Uh, even having a dozen is a lot of work, but 150 when you're short-staffed and don't know what in the world you're doing. It was a lot of work uh, that year. And we recruited from the volunteers. We recruited from our friends. And by the end of 98, we had 30 full-time people on our team there in Istanbul. And in 99, uh, we thought we could maybe just double everything. And uh, what we didn't know was that in 99, a, four, a 7.4 earthquake would happen in Istanbul and our volunteer population greatly increased as uh, the resources of the church in America and around the world were poured out to help the victims of 20, 30, 40,000 people and their families who lost their lives uh, during that few seconds. We woke up, uh, the whole house was shaking. We were in an apartment and uh, it wasn't the shaking that woke us up. It was the noise of the creaking of the building. And we didn't know what to, you know, we're from Iowa, we don't know about earthquakes. And so we just like, wow, that's something. And, uh, uh, <clears throat> and then our neighbors were pouring out of, the, of their apartments. And it's like, okay, we probably should leave, but it was the middle of the night. We didn't want to wake up our kids. You know how that is. And uh, so we waited it out and it was about 30 seconds of shaking. And the earthquake was about an hour drive away on this direction, but it was so big that, and the, you know how geology matters in earthquakes. On this side of us, there were hundreds of people who were killed. And so we're in the middle of that and we had 500 volunteers in 98 and then every other year after that. We recruited short-term, two-year people and long-term people. Eventually, we uh, established work outside of Istanbul in Ankara, which is the capital of about 5 million people, and Izmir, 
has about 3 million people, and that is ancient Smyrna, one of the seven churches in Revelation. All those churches are in, in Turkey, by the way. And, uh, you know, we couldn't go as missionaries. Yeah, I told you the IMB went where missionaries went, and, and they discovered something new. You can go if you get a different kind of visa as a believer. And so we thought, oh, well, we'll just get a student vis- uh, uh, visa or a uh, journalist or retired or uh, any mostly work visas or owning companies. Sometimes we found that the right tax and visa situation was to own a company. And so we'd get five or six owners to any company. Uh, and sometimes we found that being employees were the best way to handle that. So we would do that and it switched around. Eventually we had about a hundred people around the country in 13 cities. And then I got some responsibilities with Azerbaijan and the Kurds of Turkey and Iran and Iraq by the end. And so that was that ministry and it continues on today with lots and lots of people who are planting churches and When we got there, there were about 400 believers among 70 million people. And uh, by the time we left, not because of us, but because of God and all the workers who were there, uh, there were about 4,000 believers. And now there are probably eight or 10,000 believers in Turkey. And we don't say 70 million anymore. We say 80 million. Uh, So even though that's Percentage-wise, a huge increase. It is still really uh, a drop in a bucket. There's still a lot of work to do. So that's that's my missionary experience. I went with the International Mission Board. Uh, it's the only organization I considered with the Southern Baptist Convention. I didn't grow up Southern Baptist, but I joined a Southern Baptist church in Ames when I was a student and went to Southwestern, a Southern Baptist seminary. And so today, I just love that this church emphasizes a go month. I don't know of anybody who has an emphasis like this, and I love the commitment that you have to missions. And when we open our eyes to God's global perspective, we think of what God did in calling out, even from the beginning, Adam in the garden, and uh, that he uh, was given a task, and uh, he immediately blew it. And uh, tainted man for all time with his disobedience and his rebellion. But God in his mercy sent, even from that time, a promise that a, uh, someone would come after who would crush the enemy's head. And then later, uh, we, we saw Abraham was called out. And Abraham was given a promise that he would be the father of many nations. And, and he was childless at the time, but as time went on, he became Uh, the father of many nations, even as the sand on the seashore, and he was given uh, the the land. But before uh, a generation or two passed, uh, they were enslaved in Egypt, and we heard all about them being in Egypt, even for hundreds of years. But God, in his mercy, sent Moses for delivering them, and Moses led them out. And that time in the wilderness and early on and in Passover, Uh, shaped that people and even our own people to today uh, because of God's graciousness and kindness. And Moses also gave them the law and what God's ethical demands were. And he sustained them in the wilderness and delivered them to the promised land. In the land, eventually, they had a new king, and it was King David. And his son Solomon uh, established the temple that became the heart 
of Israel, and arguably even till today, but for centuries, the heart of the people of Israel. And then in the fullness of time, our book of Matthew says that uh, this is the book of genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. And he was born of a virgin to the new Adam and that what he did influenced every generation after him. He was the new Abraham who was the faithful one, who was ahead of a new covenant people. He was a new Moses who explained and interpreted God's ethical standards and led us into the promised land. He was the new David who was not just the king, but he was the king of kings and not just of over Israel, but in a land with no borders whatsoever. Even the whole world is to be made disciples. Church history continued and eventually people told people about Christ and eventually our parents and grandparents and teachers and pastors, neighbors and friends introduced the gospel of Jesus Christ to each of us. Uh, we heard about Jesus, the Son of God, who died for our sins and he was buried. He rose again on the third day, according to the scriptures. And all those who put their faith and trust in Jesus will have their sin forgiven and have eternal life and join the family of God. This is God's kingdom expansion. This is what's going on here at First Family, even from the beginning of sharing the gospel, of reaching families and neighbors for Christ, for helping the hurting in our community, and now even more starting churches in this city and beyond. The kingdom of God is expanding. The kingdom is like a mustard seed. You know, it's small, but it grows and it eventually becomes over all the trees, over all the plants of the garden. It's like leaven that starts small, but eventually permeates every part of the loaf. And the kingdom of God began at the time of Christ. And even Paul talked about the growth of the kingdom in all of the world. He wrote to the Romans and said, your faith is being proclaimed throughout the whole world. And from today, that time until today, the kingdom has expanded. In just a few centuries, a good portion of the whole Roman Empire, some say even 50% by the time of Constantine in the fourth century, uh, the, the people of Rome had converted and, and gave their lives to Christ. Constantine, who went to Constantinople, became Istanbul in 1453, uh, was uh, one of the first uh, emperors who was a believer. And he banished all of the laws against Christian persecution in that part of the world. And as uh, businessmen and people of commerce and in other regions would mingle around in that part of the world, first at port cities, then at other commercial and larger cities, small uh, communities of believers sprang up. There were churches in each of these larger cities. And as time went on, the intermingling I reached more and more of the land where people would have access to the good news of Jesus. Especially in the last few centuries, the Christian community has been more deliberate in sending out missionaries. Uh, we can thank heroes of the faith like William Carey and Hudson Taylor and Adoniram Judson for what they did in breaking ground to set the pace for churches gathering together in order to send out missionaries around the world. And the results have been spectacular. Like no other faith in the world, Christianity is a world religion. Even in the last century, 
the people of Africa have gone from about 3% Christian to nearly 50% Christian. In China, even when I went, China wasn't, we didn't talk about China. The Pacific Rim was Japan and Korea. The, the, the emergence of China hadn't really happened even in the 1980s. But now they say there are more evangelical believers in China than even in North America. The Middle East is experiencing uh, a re revival to where there are more people converted in some countries in the Middle East in the last generation than at any time since the establishment of Islam centuries ago. The number of nations and people with no Christian witness at all continues to get smaller and smaller. In addition, the sending force of Christianity has changed. No longer is it just Europe and North America, but the missionary receiving countries of Latin America and Korea and Africa are now sending countries. And the shift is largely in this part come in the last generation. I told you about the IMB, even when I was there in the 90s, started to shift from being uh, sending people primarily to harvest fields to sending people with un, where there were unreached people groups. Uh, when I got to Korea, there were 128, if I remember right, uh, missionaries. And within a decade, there were less than 10. They'd been redeployed to other parts of the world. And that's during the time when we, in a sense, were part of that and deployed to Turkey. When I was in Central Asia, I was on a leadership team there. And we had the assignment to figure out where we needed to send new church planting teams. And the tool in our toolbox were other North Americans. That's the way the IMB is designed. It, it deploys North American church planting teams. So we got this list, and it was uh, prioritized by population. And the first list that I remember, there were people groups with no known believer, no known missionary, with five million and more that were part of them. But as time went on, the list got to the point where there were uh, no people groups with one million or more. And later on, we started working on a list with groups as small as 100,000 uh, because all the other larger groups had uh, believers and missionaries and churches and Bible translations. Now, the number is even much smaller than that. There are only a handful of totally unreached people groups where no one is even targeting them. Now, don't get me wrong. There's plenty of need in the world. In, in the world, we have these unreached people groups. They're the, the groups with, uh, missiologists would say, are less than 2% believers. Less than 2% believers. So you're an unreached people group if you have less than 2% believers. And there are some of those that are unengaged unreached people groups, you UPGs, and that means nobody's even trying, nobody's even paying attention. And there are a few of those left, but there are lots of unreached people groups left. In fact, 40% of the world's population is in an unreached people group, about three and a half billion people. So there's a lot of progress and we have a lot to do. We know that there are many people here in Ankeny who aren't believers, and there are many people, even tens of thousands, I would say, in Ankeny who don't have a close friend who's a believer. And there are many, many people who barely even know a believer. And when you think of 
now Polk County and its population, and let's say that there's a, a, a size of believers for that group that's only as big as the people in this room, you can see that that's what would be a very unreached people group. We just wouldn't have access. Most people wouldn't even know about this little group in this part of Polk County meeting. And remember that in a lot of parts of the world, people are meeting sort of silently or carefully because of persecution from friends and family and neighbors and others who don't want them there. So the Great Commission is for us as followers of Jesus to join him, our King, and seeing the nation's disciples. Nothing has stopped the continued expansion of the kingdom like the mustard seed or like the leaven. God can do anything he chooses through the power of the Holy Spirit, and he has done that. But he uses people to accomplish his, his purposes. People who are specifically called out to share their faith with others and actively live the Christian life around the world. I want to take a few minutes today and look at a passage together. So if you open your Bibles to to the book of uh, Philippians in chapter 3, and I'm going to read verse 7 to 11. This is from the Apostle Paul toward the end of his life to the church of Philippi. And he says, But whatever things were gained to me, these things I've counted as loss for the sake of Christ. More than that, I count all things to be lost in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things and count them but rubbish so that I may gain Christ and may be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own derived from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which comes from God on the basis of faith, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings, being conformed to his death in order that I may attain to the resurrection from the dead. There's a lot in this uh, section, but I want to make three observations from this passage. The first one is that it's possible to get off track in our faith, even when we're sincerely following God. It's the nature of the sin and the enemy to get us off track to deceive us, to devour us. And at times it limits our understanding of God's ways and it keeps us from being on the right path. From, time, from the time of Adam, people have left the path and have followed other paths from God's designs. Even many in the church and church history sometimes get off path. Paul here admits to being one of those people. He got off the path, even though he was sincerely, boldly trying to follow God. And to his shame, in the name of his faith and his God, he sought out and persecuted followers of the way of Jesus Christ, even helping to imprison or execute them. In our passage today, he gloried in his former position of lawkeeper and teacher and law enforcer not only for himself, but he was doing this for his own community of faith, like he was trying to win some kind of spiritual trophy. But he was off track when he came to his senses through the power of the Holy Spirit and understood the good news of Jesus. He went back and saw the work of Christ on the cross as God's plan. He took his identity, his trophy, his former beliefs, and regarded them as rubbish. 
Whatever things were gained to me, these things I've counted lost for the sake of Christ. He needed a values adjustment, a reset. He was an expert on keeping the law, but he had gotten off track. And because his message was distorted and incomplete without the reality of Christ, he counted it as rubbish. And there are times, even in our own lives, where we may need a values reset. We may think we're good because we're sincere or working hard or our friends regard us as being committed to Christ, but we may need a values reset. We may find out that there are things that we really value that in the long run really aren't that important. We may find things that we don't value at all that we should have prioritized in our life. Last week, Pastor Todd talked about Jonah, and Jonah had a distorted view of God. It was like he said to God, uh, I get that you want me to send you to Nineveh, but uh, I think you got it wrong. Uh, You know what your problem is, God? You're too compassionate on people who just don't deserve it. So I'm not going to go. In fact, I'm going to run the other direction. And Jonah had a, a view of God, but needed an adjustment. He didn't, it was wrong for him to say, I know what justice is, God. I know what compassion is, God. And even though you're asking me to go to the Ninevites, I'm going to run in the other direction. God's compassion didn't give Jonah joy. Instead, it made him think that the Ninevites would somehow get out of punishment for their sin. He was jealous for God, but he needed a perspective adjustment. He needed to regard his view of God as being too merciful to the Ninevites as rubbish. He had a high view of God's holiness and compassion, but a low view of this compassion extending to the Ninevites. Paul, let's talk about Paul. It's not that he wasn't fervent in his faith, and it's not that he wasn't teaching many good things, but his teaching was distorted because he had incomplete knowledge. It's not that Jonah didn't believe in God, but he didn't like how God extended his mercy even to the most wicked. I need to ask, what might be broken in us? Are we like Jonah that we think that uh, those people out there are too evil to be saved and that we don't really want God to show them mercy? Or do we think that the task of going to them and learning their language and culture and putting up with all the hassle of all the food and all the laws and all the difficulty of moving to a new land is just not worth it compared to the life that I would prefer to live here? We think that things have value and discover that maybe they don't. There are things that we dismissed need to have a new priority. We don't want to get to the end of our lives and be like that uh, football player that when he recovered the fumble in his confusion ran to the wrong end zone. We don't want to be like the uh, home run player who discovered later that he was in a basketball game. We want to make sure that we hit the right goal in the right game. And we recognize that sometimes we get it wrong, that we have the wrong values, and we need to count these things as rubbish. The second thing I want to talk about is the importance of growing in the knowledge of God. Paul said, 
More than that, I count all things to be lost in view of the surpassing value of knowing Jesus Christ, my Lord. Knowledge here is more than just assenting to a few propositions, apprehending some facts, being able to explain some things. It is an intimate relationship and understanding of who God is. It's faith and trust. It's loyalty and faithfulness. Uh, it, it is a, not a kind of faith that is without works and dead. It is ongoing faithfulness to God. We should be living in act, an active knowledge of God, like Paul says in the Colossians, where he says that I want you to be filled with the knowledge of his will, and I want you to increase and growing in the knowledge of him as you walk with him and bear good fruit. What about Jonah? Jonah knew God. He knew his holiness and his compassion. That's why he was picked for the project of going to the the Ninevites. He just had an incomplete knowledge. But Jonah had a relationship with God. That's why he was chosen. Paul had a desire to know God, and that's why he was a Pharisee. And he learned, but God chose him out of that uh, to, to learn more about God's character and nature, and God used him. Each of us need to be like Hosea, who said and instructed us, let us know, let us press on to know the Lord. The preparation for any task, not just the mission's task, is to know God. And it's not just to know the facts, it's to know him. When preparing for missions, yeah, we want to know about where the unreached people groups are and the difference between a UPG and a UUPG. And we want to know the latest statistics and methods. And we want to uh, know where God is working. We want entry strategies and and visa requirements. We want to know uh, uh, and be able to critique other missions organizations and how they're working. But all of that is nothing compared to preparation through knowing God. Paul said in 1 Timothy that if you want to be prepared for something, you should be in a vessel prepared for every good work. You need to first be cleansed of these things and be a vessel of honor to be sanctified. Then you'll be useful to him. We need to turn away from the sin in our lives and turn toward Christ to know God, to follow him, to be able to communicate who God is, not because of our study, but because of our lives and our relationship with him. So before anything can happen, we know God. And the third thing I'd like to say is that we need to be acquainted with suffering. Paul says the fellowship of his sufferings being conformed to his death in order that I may attain to the resurrection from the dead. Suffering is an expected part of the Christian duty. Whether we're walking across the yard or across the world, we need to strengthen our suffering perseverance muscles. The word and the flesh and the devil are on the attack, sometimes in the background, sometimes in the foreground, but always there. Persecution and opposition comes to believers. In world evangelism, there are places that are unreached for a reason. It's because they oppose believers. They don't want you there. There's another reason. The brokenness caused by some of these cultures create uh, crime. They create injustice. Uh, they don't have a good education or medical system or a good legal system or property rights. These things are all go with the brokenness caused by turning away from Christ. Uh, 
Paul suffered. We heard about his shipwrecks. We heard about his beatings. Jonah, when he was describing Nineveh as a city, he said that it was a great city. And to him, it wasn't just the size. It was the brokenness and the difficulty of being part of there, the suffering that he would have to experience if he went to Nineveh. Suffering's real. I saw people uh, that were uh, suffered as families overseas. Sometimes it was physically, sometimes it was traffic. Sometimes they were suffering because their kids uh, were having a hard time at school. Sometimes their brothers and uh, were getting married and having kids in the States and they couldn't be involved. Sometimes their parents were dying or needing them and they couldn't go back. There's a, a kind of suffering that is part of the missionary life that we need to have our mus- muscles ready for in suffering. There's persecution. Uh, what, they, what I mean by they don't want you there is they make it hard to rent property, to start a business. Uh, they send people away from you. They tell you uh, their friends shouldn't spend time with you. This wears on you. And then there's the constant pressure of the new believers starting out strong. You get your hope that they're going to be the people, and then they wipe out in their faith. And one of the things we learned about crossing cultures is that there are certain distance in cultures. And when I was in Turkey, I thought about who should be the, the people who reach the Turks and who should North Americans reach. I told you that our toolbox for North Americans, they go everywhere. But there are some places North Americans fit in better, some places worse. And in Turkey, in the former Ottoman Empire area, there are places like Bulgaria and Albania and Ukraine and Romania that have a Muslim Ottoman Empire influence that we could recruit, bring to Turkey, train, develop, support, and they they have less cultural distance. They can get on their feet faster and have more effectiveness. And when they talk about what it's like living in a Muslim culture, they talk about their relatives, not a book they read about it. Uh, that a lot of North Americans have to do. That, I think, is the future of missions. So we learned about the importance of staying on track. We learned about the importance of knowing God in preparation. And finally, we learned about the importance of having our muscles strong to deal with suffering. I was thinking the other day, that it was 40 years now since I went to Grand Avenue Baptist Church in Ames, and my wife and I had just gone to an Iowa State football game and experienced the the mass of humanity there. And uh, the next night, we went to the service, and there was a missionary couple there, Bill and Garlinda Hyde. And some of you may have heard of them because the name of the Iowa missions offering is the Hyde Missions Offering because they were IMB missionaries in the Philippines it turned out a few years later, we're at the wrong place at the wrong time, and there was a bomb that went off at the airport in the Philippines, and they were killed. So we re- remembered them through the Hyde mission offering. However, that night, uh, when they explained the importance of work overseas and crossing cultures, they drew Darlene and my hearts toward them. And all of that preparation with international students and Bible studies and time overseas started to gel. And we said, we're ready to go. And we're ready to go now. I started thinking about what I was going to tell my parents about dropping out as a sophomore to go overseas. And the wise folks at leadership at our church said, oh no, if you want to do this well, do this right. 
get your education, get training, get experience, and be sent by a quality sending agency like the IMB. And that's exactly what we did. And it, was, it took us six or seven years, but that's the foundation that God was able to use in order for us to have uh, some uh, small impact in what God is doing all around the world through a lot of people. And I, I would encourage you to consider, not everybody can go overseas. Some are in a different spot and obligations and, and parents and that kind of thing. But actually that sort of ups the ante for those that can go to consider going. And I would like you, even now, even today, to consider if you might be the one that God is calling out to cross the culture, to go overseas. It's worth it. And the, it's what God does to expand his kingdom around the world. Let's pray together. Father, I thank you for the truth of the gospel. I thank you for the history from Adam and Abraham, Moses and David. Thank you for our savior, Jesus, who you knit together to put together a plan to rescue us from our sin and death and destruction. We thank you for those that heard the gospel and shared it with others, who eventually shared it with us and that we could understand the gospel and to respond. And now, Lord, I ask that you give each of us direction, not just out in the future, but for many of us, that's something to consider how to be involved in sending or going overseas. But all of us can be involved today in our own friendship circle and communities and neighbors and work to consider how we can be part of what you're doing around the world to the spread of your kingdom with the gospel. And we ask, Lord Jesus, that you work even now in this room today.